Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. In today's episode, we're speaking with Cormac Kinney, a serial fintech entrepreneur and now founder and CEO of Diamond Standard. Cormac has built and sold a number of companies. He's raised over $500 million for his ventures, been a regular guest on Bloomberg, and now he's technologizing and financializing the sought-after commodity of diamonds. Diamonds have a long history of being a precious commodity. However, unlike silver and gold and other precious metals, there's not been a system to effectively productize diamonds into a standardized offering. The market has traditionally been very opaque, with very little liquidity and large spreads between buyers and sellers. Diamond Standard effectively mints coins and bars of a standardized collection of diamonds. These physical assets are then tokenized and accompanied by microchips for identifying, tracking, and authenticating them using blockchain technology. To my pleasure, Cormac unpacks this multifaceted story about his approach, progress, and success in minting and monetizing diamond coins and bars. He's tackled standardization problems using his background in computer science, regulatory obstacles through diligent relationship development, and transparent price discovery through the automation of bidding and buying of physical diamonds. This is a fascinating interview, and I truly enjoyed learning about how Cormac is tackling this very obvious but challenging market problem. And before we get started, Please note that the information contained in this interview is not intended and shall not be understood or construed as financial advice. I'm not a financial advisor and make no warranties or representations concerning the accuracy or suitability of the information contained in this interview. I, myself, and all related parties disclaim any liability for information provided here and recommend that any and all investment decisions be made with the advice of an accredited investment advisor. Now that said, Enjoy the show. Cormac, welcome to the show. Great to be here with you. Thanks. I'm looking forward to our conversation as you've got a really interesting career in fintech and have now moved into the commodity space with an interesting commodity being diamonds. I want to get into all of this, but I think the best place for us to start is for you to give us some background on yourself. So I'll turn it over to you and yeah, let's hear it. My background is I grew up in the Midwest. I'm the oldest of a, of a large family, and I've always been pulled towards entrepreneurship. When I was a teenager, I was mowing lawns, you know, and that was always my direction. And I ended up getting into computers at a pretty young age and being fortunate to attend Carnegie Mellon University, which is a, one of the world's greatest computer science schools. And I studied computer science there. I, I ended up leaving with three degrees. The school let me try lots of different things, from engineering to art to architecture, economics, etc. So it's a it's really the, it was a perfect fit for me. And while I was at university, I actually started three software companies. Starting my sophomore year, my first company was actually acquired by a large insurance company called Northwestern Mutual, 
And I built a simple system to forecast if you made so many calls as a, as a new agent, how many sales would you project? And it was a way to incentivize the salespeople. And, but that really started my path. And I kept on building software. My second company, which I started as a sophomore and I sold my senior year, was actually acquired by Oracle. We did optimization for factory scheduling, which sounds incredible, but it's, it's simply because I had taken a course in optimization and I had a summer job at H.J. Hines, which is a factory where they make ketchup and soup. And, and that combination of, of a little bit of knowledge and a, and a lucky opportunity, I managed to turn into an actual real business where I basically applied that learning. But anyway, that continued. And my third company was the probably the biggest, NeoVision, where I had a new idea, which was what everyone's familiar with now. They've seen, I'm sure you've seen heat maps. That word never existed. I, I coined that phrase. People are surprised. So I say, go look at the U.S. Patent Office and trademarks. And you'll see I filed the trademark in the, in the early 90s. And people know the heat maps because it's so visual. But what I actually built was like a Lego system for trading systems where you could block, put together these blocks of, of different features. Like one feature was uh, Dow Jones or a Reuters data feed handler. Another feature was uh, portfolio valuation. But you could put these blocks together and build a basic trading system in about a month instead of a year. And you know, people now call that middleware in many cases. But that was a kind of something that I helped pioneer. And I ended up getting a lot of investors from Intel, the chip company, and JP Morgan and Bear Stearns. My, my biggest investor was actually Deutsche Bank. And they were all customers. And I ended up designing about 100 trading systems over about a 10-year period. And that company got to be pretty big, over 100, 100 people total. We ended up getting acquired by the uh, Carlyle Group, which is a giant private equity group here in, in the States. And they merged it with a, they ended up taking it public through a company called SS&C. But anyway, that was my foundation. And along the way, I really learned a lot about fintech because those, you know, my fintech was really the main focus. After selling that trading systems company, I built my own trading system because it, it looks so easy to be a trader. <laughs> That's a joke, by the way. But <laughs> yeah. I worked with so many traders, and a lot of them would always complain that they had a strategy that was ruined by this thing called sentiment. And sentiment, I was like, what, what is that? They're like, well, it's like the opinion. It's, it's not the fact. It's not the earnings. It's not the PE or the you know, return history. It's this opinion that can come out of nowhere and shift like sand. And boy, that sounded interesting to me, the idea of, of quantifying something that was so important to a financial trader, but had never been measured and never and couldn't be traded against. And so for about six years, I made that my focus. And I pioneered a technology called computational linguistics. I didn't pioneer that, but I took that technology a lot of it came from Carnegie Mellon and also Stanford. And I used that basically t teaching a computer to read the news and estimate, is this news good or bad for a stock? And it may sound simple, but it's actually not because you could take an example like layoffs. 
a company just announced layoffs, is that good for the stock or bad for the stock? It's actually, it's obviously bad for the people, yeah. but it might actually be good for the stock. And so what I discovered was that by measuring the word choice and the opinions of the writer, you could detect their opinion and multiply that by a very large scale. If you we, we had 24 news feeds, so over 100,000 articles a day, a lot of them were the same thing. But you could measure what was the opinion of the writer as a statistical sample of what might be the opinion of the market. That turned out to be a very, very successful strategy. And I, and I launched that in 2006. And I ended up being a, using just using that technology, I got a job as a portfolio manager for two of the most famous funds in the world. One is Tudor, a guy named Paul Tudor Jones, where I ran U.S. equities, quantitative trading. And then I moved on to a, a much larger fund called Millennium, which today is a $65 billion hedge fund. But <laughs> I'm sorry that took so long, but the, there was a thread through that which was leading to diamonds. Absolutely, man. Take all your time. I really, I'm, I'm enjoying this and just piling up a bunch of questions for us. So please continue. Well, so that fund that got, got acquired by Millennium and throughout that time for the last 22 years, I've been with my wife, Mimi So. She's a, a famous jewelry designer based here in New York. She was formerly part of the Richemont Group, which owns Cartier and Van Cleef and Arpels and Piaget. So part of a very global diamond and jewelry company. For 15 years, she complained about the diamond market, how complicated it was and how the prices were so subjective and there was no transparency. And it was very you know difficult to buy diamonds at a fair price. It's so subjective. And boy, it's like I heard that music in my head again. I was like, wow, there's a really big market that's very difficult to quantify. I'm going to bring all those technologies that I've used over the last 20 years, which are optimization. That company I sold that I built for Heinz was an optimization company. Automated market making. All the trading systems that I built used automated market making and the, op, and the statistical arbitrage that I use for quantitative trading. It turns out that those technologies are what I realized could solve the challenge of creating a diamond commodity. And the problem with diamonds is that, A, they're a huge market. The diamonds in the world are worth more than all the silver, platinum, and palladium combined. But investors could never invest in diamonds. Wow. Because there's never been price transparency. You know, people may trade a diamond or even auction it at Sotheby's, but there's that is one diamond. Every diamond's a little bit different. So there's no price discovery for all diamonds all the time. Yep. And that's what I realized. This is a computer science problem where automated market making is required, for example. And anyway, that's how I got started on Diamond Standard. Yeah. Okay. So I do have a question there of like, you know, what brought you to that? And I think we've, we've now come to the doorstep, but if you can give us a in a nutshell, what Diamond Standard is, kind of that that 30-second overview. And then I want to get into how you're actually able to grade and put a, a figure to this commodity. Because as as I think everyone knows or, or has experienced, if they've ever gone to buy a diamond, it, it feels highly, highly subjective. 
Yeah. And from, you know, your different grading standards, your colors, your cuts, all of this kind of thing. I think there's a lot there. So please give us the, the, the high level and then we can come into how you've really put computer science to work to start to figure this out. Yeah. So we shamelessly, <laughs> I'd like to say, we copied the gold market. And if you look at gold, you have coins, right? Most gold coins are one ounce. And if you look up the market price of gold, it's quoted in an ounce. A gold ounce today is seventeen hundred and some six, six, you know, seventeen hundred forty-five dollars. And therefore, you know, every gold coin is about seventeen hundred and forty-five dollars. Might be a little premium. There's never, but there's never a discount. And the same thing is true with gold bars. If you want to transact a gold bar in the United States on on an exchange. It has to be 400 ounces, and it has to be 99.9% pure. That's what's called a good for delivery bar. And on the CME, where they trade gold futures, that's what they're trading. Every trade is for a 400-ounce bar. So what I realized is that that's exactly what we needed for diamonds. We needed what's called a fungible unit, like a coin where every coin is the exact same. If they're all the same, whether we make them today or if we make them in 50 years from now, if all these diamond coins are the same, they all trade at the same price, if all the diamond bars are the same. So what we set out to do is exactly that. We developed a regulator-approved process to aggregate different diamonds into a single fungible unit, which is a coin or a bar. And people on the video can see I'm holding them up. Or if you can see it at our website, obviously. So every diamond standard coin or bar, it contains diamonds. But the, the breakthrough is that these two bars and every bar, even though the diamonds are slightly different, the diamonds add up to a public standard based on the varieties of carrots and colors and clarities and cuts all these complexities of diamonds we solved how to put them together like a jigsaw puzzle let me just quickly explain for for the listeners here cormac just held up two pieces of effectively like a a diamond bar and a, a diamond coin which have a grouping of diamonds actual diamonds that are set in you know some kind of resin to to encapsulate them in and then there's some interesting tech there and i do want to get into this about you using blockchain and tokens to, to represent the actual units mm-hmm. and effectively like a, a barcode or excuse me, a serial number on a gold bar or something like that. So hopefully that helps provide context for the listeners. Now, when you put these things together, this is the question I have. I mean, I look at diamonds and you've got cut clarity and I think there's a, you know, a list of scenes that you have to work in there. The regulator process, I'm assuming that's where you get the, that's where the trust is built into to what you're actually getting out of the, the asset you're buying or the commodity that you're buying. Yeah. What's critical is that everybody understands how did those eight diamonds come together and what makes those eight diamonds the same as every other eight diamonds. So that process of, of, price discovery and optimization is is radically transparent and regulator approved. It's also audited by Deloitte and all the diamonds are independently graded. So we have like five separate checkpoints 
But that's the result of this of this process. I just want to point out, I do want to come to a discussion about what that was like working with your auditors to wrap their heads around this new process. And, and the reason why I asked this, and let's touch on it later, but you know, oftentimes auditors working with publicly listed tech companies have to be educated on the, the business model, educated on the, the, the value proposition or the way that even recognizing revenue, things like this. And so I'm sure that was a relationship development and education process for them. Maybe we'll get into that later. Yeah, it only took us three three years of intense work to do that. Part. I was going to say, yeah, yeah. Okay, so please continue on with Diamond Standard and where you're at. Well, so our job is, when you boil it down, our job is very simple. We are what's called the primary dealer. And our job is simply to make coins and bars the exact same forever. And we had to create the whole flow and the audit the audit and the regulatory and the exchange etc a lot of technology but when it boils down to it our job is to ensure that every bar is equal just like every gold bar is equal and then on top of that we have lots of partners who are building all of the financial products that you have for gold for example futures and options and lending, and custody, and exchange-traded funds, and distribution, we are in the process, and in many cases far along, of creating all of those features that you have for gold. One of the most exciting ones recently was that we launched the first spot market. And this is where anybody who owns or wants to own diamond commodity can buy it at an efficient market price with no markup, no brokers or dealers, they, they can simply trade directly on the exchange. What is the utility of diamonds? Gold has a long history. Silver has a long history. When you, you know you can picture back, you know I always seem to picture back to the Roman times and the trading of, of gold coins and silver coins and so on. Yeah. A lot of history there. But when it comes to diamonds, and please, please correct me here, but I just pictured De Beers you know, the, the token phrase, diamonds are your best friend. So what's the utility there? And, and then the statistics behind how they effectively aren't correlated to the market. Yeah. So you go back to the pirates throughout the Caribbean and the, and the Atlantic, they were all plundering diamonds. So long before De Beers, the Queen of England had a Cullinan diamond in her, in her crown. Hmm. So diamonds have always been cherished. They weren't marketed. They, they didn't have the whole two-month salary campaign right. to really bring them down to consumers. But wealthy people for thousands of years have cherished diamonds as a, as a valuable store of wealth, as something for trading, as you know, really much more for the wealthy than for the general public. But diamonds have always been valuable. And there's no denying that the diamond industry, jewelry, is is you know, overwhelmingly used for jewelry, like 99%, even industrial diamonds are much more likely to be synthetic than natural diamonds today. But natural diamonds at their terminal value when they're sold to consumers are something like $60 billion per year. Wow. So it's a very, very substantial yep. market. At, at, the, at the mining level, when they're rough diamonds, that's when De Beers and others dig them up, Rio Tinto and Dominion and Petra and Lucara, a lot of Canadian firms in there. That rough diamond production is about $25 billion per year. 
So from 25 to 60 is, is value added. Interesting. Through the cutting and polishing, distribution, marketing, et cetera. Yep. So it's a big market. I find it quite interesting in the ability now to to connect and, and give the general public the ability to buy in and, and, and hold this asset the way same way you may hold a gold coin, uh, uh, you know, a, if you're fortunate, a gold bar, but that kind of, of store of wealth. Well, I'll tell you what's most interesting is that financialization will have an impact on the market value. And there's there's two case studies that we can point to. Number one is gold. So gold is financialized, meaning that most investors that own gold actually own it as an ETF. You know, I'm not counting the jewelry in your jewelry box. That's not an investment. But the majority of people who invest in gold have done through, done so through the GLD or Sprott gold funds. That's over $200 billion worth of gold in these funds. Yeah. That went from zero to $200 billion over about 15 years. Hmm. That corresponded to a 47% annual return for gold over that long period. So the financialization, the demand for gold by investors, in part drove the price of gold up. Gold dramatically has outperformed this S&P 500, for example, over 20 years. Gold is up 6x in that time. More recently, there's been the financialization of uranium. And there were two uranium funds launched in 2021. One was by Sprott and one was by a UK firm called Yellowcake. Yep. Those two firms in total bought about $4.2 billion worth of uranium. There were no new nuclear plants. The demand for uranium didn't skyrocket. It's the financialization that bought the liquid readily available float yep. and drove and uranium went up 300% during that time. So we think the financialization of diamonds is is a a very interesting opportunity for for investors. But it's also very special for institutions because diamonds are this, you know, forgotten hard asset. And if you look at every other precious metal like gold, but more like palladium and platinum and rhodium, investors today own at least 15% of each of those precious metals, meaning that bars of palladium sitting on a vault, not for, you know, catalytic converters, but strictly for investment, that adds up to 15%. For diamonds, those diamonds that are held by investors are, are less than 2% of the supply. Right. A lot of individuals on them. But so we think that there'll be a basically a shift, as we saw with GLD, that investors build a position and that's going to have a dramatic impact on, on price. And 15% is our target. Fascinating. Yeah. Your website has tons of information. I really did enjoy starting to dig in and wrap my head around what you're doing here. And, and it, I think it's a the term financialization of this asset is really spot on. That's very, very interesting. When it comes to building this organization, I mean, this is not a small undertaking. There's, I think, the, the collection and the, and the production of the, the bars and the coins. There's the, the technology behind them for tokenizing and, and putting them onto some form of, of ledger, the technology there. Then, as you touched on, the different financial aspects of building the spot market, building the futures, building the, you know, the number of different aspects through partners there. So 
take us through that. And I, and I'm I'm curious on an entrepreneurial entrepreneurial level how you prioritized this and put this to work and started getting progress on on what is a a huge undertaking. Yeah, I think uh, like a lot of entrepreneurs when they talk about how they got started, it's like they often say, I really didn't know what I was getting into, how complicated it would be. I saw the uh, big opportunity. Obviously, I've, I've run a lot of software businesses over the years, and I've built, built a lot of things. And that's really what attracted me because I love building. But it's kind of unfolded in front of us. And I had the discipline to, to build one step at a time. And I understood enough of where we were going to, to not make any giant mistakes of, of going down the, the wrong path. And one of the most important things we did from the very beginning is we had this concept, you know, the mathematical, which is now pat, a U.S. patent because no one ever invented anything like that, this, this process. And the first thing we did was we had to search the world, but we found a regulator that would sit with us and listen and hear it out and learn and take the time to understand what we were doing and form an opinion on is this accurate? Does this work? We were also lucky to get very early on a a very large asset manager as an investor. And that gave us credibility and also some some guidance. We spent the first two years doing core technology development on the optimization, on the exchange. We had to solve a lot of problems to, to get there, but we brought a regulator along with us for the entire way so that when we finally were ready with a product, we also had a regulatory approval. And that turned out to be essential as it led to, now we have a total of four wow. regulatory approvals. And that's essential for building trust in this really, people are very jaundiced about diamonds as an investment because they've always had that bad experience. They buy basically at retail, which is very marked up. And then if they try to sell, they're selling at a liquidation below wholesale, and they're always losing 40%, and and nobody likes that. So we have to really – and that's our website is very institutional because we're trying to convey the facts, which are the return, the correlation, the spreads of of the trading. But yeah, it, it it was a long path to develop all that. Yeah, I, I appreciate the the note on discipline to one step at a time. I want you to take us to the first meeting you had with a regulator, and it sounds like that would have been the path to go. How that meeting was, and if you recall, and and what you learned from that, because I'm sure things have changed uh, as you went through, and you maybe even look back and go, I can't believe we approached it that way. When now I see where we're at, what did you take from that? Well, earlier in this conversation, you asked me, how do you get audited? Right. You know, okay. How does a, an auditor look at this? So that's actually how it started. We actually hired the auditor first. The auditor researched the global regulators and ended up taking us to Bermuda. Bermuda is, A, it's close to New York where I live. It's English law. And Bermuda re- regulators are extremely well regarded. They're respected worldwide. But most importantly, Bermuda approvals are accepted in the U.S. Gotcha. It's on the approved list of overseas regulators. Bahamas are not, for example, as we saw with uh, recent episodes with FTX. So we walked in with, with the auditor, 
And what the regulator required was a business plan. And that business plan was a 30-page document that outlined every step of our process, how we plan to build, sell, who our clients would be, how we buy the diamonds, everything that we would do. And that document was interactively refined over two years. At the end, we had a polished set of rules. This is how we will perform as a company. This is the process. They threw in lots of steps. Among them are, this is where the auditor is going to come in and check. Did you actually do that? For example, whenever we touch customer money, when we receive money, that's all in escrow. And that's all audited. How, when we can release that money when we buy the diamonds is audited. So all of these key steps that we agreed upon with the regulator, then the auditor was there to say, yes, and we will check those things that they promised. And that's how we were able to build together and, and really understand what are we measuring? What are we delivering? And it's been a very challenging. They're a very, very serious regulator. They can't afford to be embarrassed, and we can't afford to embarrass them. And so it's a mutual respect and also love. You know, They want us to succeed, and we want their approval. So it's kind of – I've never had a relationship like that with a – I never had a regulator. Yeah. I, would, I don't want to say it's turned the, the model upside down or to, on top of its head, but it's in building a relationship of sorts like this with a regulator – it sounds quite unusual, but it makes sense. Yeah, I don't know if it's unusual. I was never regulated. You know, I ran funds, but I never dealt with any of that stuff. This regulator decided we're going to support something new and innovative. And it was a tremendous amount of work for them and to, to learn something. And, and But the way we got in is that Bermuda had decided that they were going to regulate digital assets as a category. And they were going to use their world-class monetary authority yes. that issues their currency, for example. That same entity would regulate what we, what you know are now really only first-class digital asset businesses. And it's because of that hook we were able to say, well, this is digital <laughs> in a way. And yes. they said, yeah, okay. Yeah, I, I see that as a you know, great word, like the hook of, well, this is a – a physical backed digital asset. Correct. Yeah. Very interesting. Very interesting. Any other points you want to share about digital standard before I, I take us down a path of getting to know you more? Well, you had asked about the digital aspect. And it's kind of interesting because we do all this complicated optimization. And in order for us to build our commodity, we had to first build an electronic diamond exchange, which is where we do our price discovery. We bid through our exchange on 16 million varieties of diamonds a day, and we had to bring in 180 members so far, and we had to build these intake centers all around the world. Every diamond we buy has to go through this process of being graded before we buy it independently by uh, a group called the GIA. I, I point that way. You can see in my reflection, that's their <laughs> building in my window. So every diamond is certified, and that's what's its carat weight, color, clarity, and it has to go through this exchange. The exchange enforces things like no child labor, and they have to be natural diamonds, and we can't negotiate privately, no secret buying. It's all public bidding only. And then at the end of all that, 
the diamonds have to get organized by optimization into blocks of eight. Yeah, I just want to quickly touch on that. I thought it was interesting. You have a block of eight diamonds, which to meet a certain standard, you have a huge variety. And I, and I, I would imagine that's where some computational work comes into identify and select and then allocate those diamonds into to the bars. That's right. It's all based on statistics. And I like to say Adam Smith and, and the invisible hand, if, if you remember the, yep. the wealth of nations. And we don't have an opinion on the price of diamonds. The way your jeweler might look at the diamond and say, oh, this one is such and such. It should be worth X. And that's an opinion. And in finance, opinions are worthless. The only thing that has value is cash on the barrel head. Yeah. An actual, what's called an actionable offer. Or even better is an actual trade that you have visibility on the New York Stock Exchange or the TSX. So using brute force is how we force the market to tell us what is every diamond worth. And very simply, we bid a cash bid on literally every possible type of diamond that we can use. We can use about 94% of diamonds. We can't use tiny little things that are too small to be graded. We don't use you know big, giant, three-carat diamonds either. Those are very subjective. But everything in between, whether it's flawless or flawed or decolor or anything in between, we can use. And so we bid on every possible diamond, and we force the market to tell us What's the value by raising our bids until somebody says yes? And what we end up buying is what's called a statistically valid sample. That means we buy a little bit of every different type of diamond, but we actually buy them in the same frequency as what's been found in the earth. Hmm. So, for example, we always buy D-flawless diamonds, but we don't buy very many. You know, we may buy a hundred a week for diamonds at the other end of the range, smaller KSI2 diamonds, we might buy 4,000. Yeah, I see as a representation of really what is being mined and, and what is in the market at the time. And we call that the yield curve. And it's not like a bond where the yield changes with the duration, but it's the literal yield of the earth. What frequency of D color does the earth produce on a regular basis? Right. So every time we buy diamonds, we buy them in proportion of what the earth has produced historically. And that proportion never changes. It might change in the over future. It's very unlikely, but they might find a new mine that's all flawless diamonds. That could happen, I guess. Yeah. That pattern, that's what our patent is. Our, we have a method through bidding that we buy the same statistical distribution every week. And so the diamonds we buy today, think of it like a pile, and the diamonds we buy in 30 years, the two piles are never identical, right? You can't buy the exact same 10,000 diamonds. But if you analyze what's the percent of D color, what's the percent of flawless, those statistics are always the same forever. Yes. So we can prove that every pile is geologically equivalent. And then the last step that you asked about is, okay, you get eight in a bar. The last step is we had a breakthrough in optimization where we divide that pile so that every bar is also a statistical sample. 
So every bar has small, medium, and large along that yield curve. It has a distribution of the colors, the clarities, and the carat weights that are optimized. And when we made our first batch, which was $25 million worth, we set a minimum that every bar must have more geology, more carat weight, more color, more clarity than the minimum bar in the first run. And that is the diamond standard. It's that minimum bar of diamonds that must be, of geology that must be contained in every bar. So every bar is at least as good as the worst bar. And they're all within 1% anyway. Yeah. They're very, very similar. And and let's compare it to gold as well. I mean, you have there, there's a standard there for, you know, 99.9% pure gold or whatever that number is. And they can do the, the metallurgical analysis there to, to confirm that that's the, or you buy from a trusted source, yes, whatever bank you're with or whatever mint you, you choose. So in a way you're, you're minting these diamond bars and diamond coins. That's exactly right. But as you mentioned with a gold bar, you can test it and you can say, yep, that is 99.9 or 999.9. That was the question that, that came to mind. Yes. How do you, how do you test this? How do you validate this? So the way we validate it is we have to make everything we do public and we wanted to, we have to share all of that information, the certificates, the statistical sample, the optimization process, because if you look at one bar in the abstract, you don't know, you can't prove, is this part of a whole set that was using the law of large numbers? So what we wanted to do is we wanted to publish all that information but we also wanted that information to go with the commodity forever so that the third, fourth, or fifth customer that owns that bar, they still have all that original information. So what we did is we published all of the data on a blockchain. Blockchain means we can't change it because every block is built on the previous one. So once it's public, we can never edit it. And also, if we go out of business, the blockchain still survives. It doesn't rely on us in any way. Yep. So every bar contains a wireless computer chip, and it's a white layer inside the bar. You can easily see it from the back of the bar because it fills the whole back. That's a wireless computer chip that stores an actual blockchain token and address. And that on the bar token and the, and the public blockchain contains all the data that proves the provenance of all these diamonds, and the fact that this bar is the same as all others. And what's interesting is that that token can be transacted. So while the bar is sitting at Brinks or JP Morgan or another vault, you and I can trade that token. And whoever has the token has a copy of all the information, and they own the bar. They can actually claim it from the vault. Amazing. Amazing. When you came to to identify the, you know, this yield curve of diamonds as they're extracted from the earth and, and the, the statistical weighting when you bring it to the bar. What was that like? Was it you're sitting down at a whiteboard? Was it just you? Was it a number of people? How did you come across that? Was it an aha moment or was it just absolutely obvious to you? No, it was, it was the result of a lot of work and thinking. And as I mentioned, I was, you know, I had a long background in and statistical arbitrage. So I have a good kinesthetic understanding of, of data, you know, from heat maps and from optimism, my whole career. 
I just have an aptitude for large data and visualizing it. And I'll tell you exactly what I saw. The aha moment was I bought a, a diamond for my wife to get married. And I did this whole research and I made a scatter plot of all of the different characteristics, the price versus color versus clarity, bah, 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 all the different factors. And it was a very confusing scatter plot because it, it's diamonds are nonlinear, right? So as diamonds get larger, they get exponentially more valuable. So it was very hard to pull a, a, tr a trend out of it. And the visualization was, what if I could create the scatter plot in reverse, which is instead of analyzing the prices, what if my I bid and I raise the prices until I form a scatter plot that is fits uh, the pattern of from the first event? So the first event, which is what you originally asked about, we didn't have we didn't define that yield curve. The market did. So under regulatory approval, we were allowed to sell twenty five million dollars worth of the coins. That was the first product we launched. And so we had $25 million and we had this range of diamonds, which is only up to 0.75 carats. And we divided that money between 800 different slices. One slice might be 0.25 to 0.27 yep. D flawless. That's one slice. And what we did very simply is we spent the same amount of money in every slice. And what we learned is that the market told us for $17,000 or whatever it was, this is how many diamonds you get in this slice. Mm. So at the, at the low end slice of small diamonds, we got hundreds of small diamonds. At the very high end, a D flawless 0.75 carat, we only got three or four. So the market told us the yield curve. And we used the money to force that price discovery. And that created the very first scatter plot. That scatter plot, all of its statistics are exactly what we replicate. And that came to me kind of in a aha moment. I was like, oh, I need to make a reverse scatter plot. And hmm. that was the foundation of Diamond Standard. Fantastic. And it even ties back into you first looking to buy a diamond for your to be fiance. Yeah. Love it. Love it. Very interesting. She taught me everything about diamonds. Yeah. Wow. Fascinating. Okay. Let's go back to, to your previous ventures. I'm curious about raising money and raising money specifically from financial institutions. How's that been? And what did you take from that? Like what kind of relationships come to build and raise money from the likes of JP Morgan, Deutsche Bank, and so on, and whoever has invested in, in you in the past? Because it's not much talked about. Yeah. It's always a challenge. And I'd hate it. I don't like it. I like building. Early on in my career, I got lucky. So with with like the my first two companies, they were financed by the customers. Like H.J. Hines financed through a contract, my, my first company. Northwestern Mutual financed my very first, H.J. Hines a second. In the case of NeoVision, I had my first boss actually invested in my company. So it was all friends and family. He brought in his friends, which were lawyers in Pittsburgh, and between them, they invested a few hundred thousand dollars. And that got me started. And it was all just sweat equity for me. I put in a little bit of money because I, I had some. But ultimately, it came from the customers. So Deutsche Bank was a customer, and JP Morgan were customers for my trading systems. 
And it was through those relationships that we developed an investment relationship that ultimately raised a lot of money. Along the way, I also raised a lot of money from venture capital for for NeoVision, the trading systems company. And I had I had one really great venture capital investor who became a, a lifelong mentor. But we also had a lot of really crappy venture capital investors who they're great partners and they're going to help you so much when before they invest. And then you never see them again except to ask for the, the quarterly reports. Intel was a great investor because they never bothered us. <laughs> we, we never heard from them, but they never bothered us either. Other investors, they, they really think they know everything. I honestly developed, in general, a, a pretty strong distaste for venture capital. And the kind of things they finance are, are the things that are cookie cutter that everyone's doing. It's very like a fashion trend. Yeah. And they, yeah. they want to invest when it's really obvious. And they really want to get control. And fi- they can easily fire the, the entrepreneur. So I really refuse that. I'm, I'm kind of hard-headed that way. And at least with Diamond Standard, I was fortunate. I was really able to finance a lot of it myself. But then once you're putting your own money in, and I, I have obviously a, a very strong track record now. So I went to a lot of my hedge fund contacts, and that's really how we funded Diamond Standard. So I'm not a good example because for this venture, it was actually pretty easy. Yeah. Will you share the the money you've raised and where you're at? Is that public or is that something you'd like to discuss? I don't mind. We recently announced in July, we did a $30 million Series A. Our largest investors were Horizon Kinetics, which is a great hedge fund. We did bring in one VC, which a great bunch called Left Lane Capital. And they actually have turned out to be great advisors. They really know a lot about consumer brands. I don't know anything about consumer brands. So they've ended up being extremely, extremely helpful. All of our early investors, and we raised another 20 million, so 50 million total, but 20 million all came from people from finance, all individuals, no institutional investors other than Horizon Kinetics. Wow, very interesting. Yeah, and, and I can see the uh, the relationships there and now what you're doing with with the track record. It certainly isn't a shoo-in, but it's definitely... <laughs> I can see how you could finance what is arguably a very different or difficult venture to finance. I will tell you, I, I met with dozens of VCs, by the way. Okay. This is a fantastic company, profitable, huge upside. It didn't fit the cookie cutter yes. of VCs. So I did try to raise VC money. I couldn't get any interest from any of the big Silicon Valley firms, Sand Hill Road firms, even the New York kind of fintech VCs. The fact that we're building an exchange and a commodity, they're like, we don't know commodities. If, even if I wanted VC money, I had a, no interest yeah. that I could detect. It's certainly like you didn't come in with a business plan to say, we're going to do this. We're going to get the traction. We're going to show you that traction. We're going to get, you know, go raise more and this will be our valuation. You know, you know, there was no kind of, I think in your case, it was very, it, it seems very much multiple components. Yeah. You can't start small either. We couldn't start small. Yeah, absolutely. We had to build it and hope they come. Yeah. But we were confident, obviously. I'm curious about Left Lane and their experience in consumer consumer products because I see this when I when I see the coins and I think through this. It's an interesting one and I can see the the initial target consumer as you've you've uh, stated or earlier was institutions. But I could see high net worth individuals looking at this and saying, hmm, interesting. 
I get this, happy to put some of my their, their capital into to these form of assets. But that's a, a marketing play in itself. What is your th- thinking around there? Yeah, so it's, it's actually a huge challenge. Big institutions, can, we've met with a lot of Canadian pensions, for example, but you know, a lot of institutional investors, they love what we're doing and they are extremely attracted to this asset class. However, none of them have bought a single coin or bar because it's not big enough yet. For Ontario teachers to invest, you know, that's a $50 million check. Yes. That was more than our, than our first year's total production. So they can't even stick a small toe in for them because they needed the market to progress the liquidity and the, the different products like funds and ETFs. So we really were forced to market initially to self-directed investors. And fortunately, we found a lot because inflation was a big problem. The stock market crashed. And our commodity actually went up 30% in the first year So when everything else was falling. So it was actually a very good window Mm. for a lot of investors. But we could only sell to self-directed investors. Only now, only in the last three months, have we launched our first fund. Only recently have we gotten approval for futures, but they're not even live yet. So for us to actually deliver to the institutions is still probably three or three to six months away. Interesting. Okay. I do want to ask some questions more on a, on a personal level. And well, I mean, it's still professional related, but throughout your career, and I think throughout every entrepreneur's career, there's mistakes which they make perhaps painful in the time, but incredibly value for their, valuable for their future. Any that come to mind for you? Oh, my God. I've made so many mistakes. I'm 50 now, so and I've been an entrepreneur for, I don't know, 30 years. So I've, I've made all the mistakes. For me, now that I look back, the mistakes have been trying to do too many things instead of focusing. But also, I have had several ventures that failed. And often it's because they were too small of a market, too small of a opportunity, like build, you know, someone, like building an app or, or something. For me, I've realized it's easier to raise more money for a bigger idea right. than it is to raise 50000 or $100,000 from friends and family. Yeah. Well, there's that. It's easier to raise 50 mil than it is to raise five. Same amount of work. That's I think, well, five is pretty damn hard to raise too. But if you're raising $5 million, you've got something, I think. You know, Diamond Standard, I really, I raised, for many cases, 500000 at a time. And that was a lot of work. Hmm. Part of it was I didn't want VCs. And we really would have moved a lot faster. If I got a big check from a VC, I would have had probably half the equity I have today. So that's a trade-off that I entered into willingly and, and decided I'm, I'm willing to go slower and have more control is really more of what I wanted. Because I, I, I had successful ventures and didn't really make much money. But the VCs all made lots of money. Right. So that left a bad taste. You know, I've made a lot of mistakes with hiring. And, and that's something that I've always been very proud of is creating a lot of jobs. But I've also made a lot of mistakes. And I've learned over time really how to hire and motivate people uh, a lot better. And really, all of our employees are shareholders. It's really been important to align incentives. Interesting. Great point, sir. I want to ask, are you a reader? Yeah. Any books that you read, anything that's been influential to you across the board, fiction, nonfiction, what are you into? I read a lot. 
it's funny. I can't always claim to, to finish the books, but I start a lot of books. And that's, I mentioned at the beginning with Carnegie Mellon. It let me take a lot of different classes and they weren't, they didn't hold me down. Cormac, I just want to touch on that point. I was, I was very much the same way. I used to pick up books and then feel this deep obligation to finish them. Not me. And then if I find myself on YouTube and I'm watching something and I'm like, this sucks, I don't feel any obligation. <laughs> and it was this kind of moment where I'm like, no, I don't need to finish this book. Move on. And so anyway, just a, a funny point that for, for me at least. Yeah. So I have a lot of my books on my iPad and it tells you what percent you've gone through. And it's, it's funny how, I mean, I have a lot that are 20, 30, 40, 50%. And I'll oftentimes go back to them. And it's, it's really funny. I love books where I get ideas. And so if I look through my library, it's, it's a lot of business biographies hmm. where now, and I'll put myself in the shoes of the entrepreneur and hear about decisions they made or, and it'll often spark ideas. So business biographies, I, I, right now I'm reading the story of GE. It's called Power Failure. Oh, interesting. Which is super interesting. It goes all the way back to Thomas Edison. And the, all the steps, and I don't want to spoil the ending, but GE goes from really like the Facebook, Google, and Apple combined of the 50s and through 70s to, you know, it's been a shadow of, its, of itself lately. Yes. So it's, it's that hubris moment. Because I came from quantitative trading, there's a book called The Man Who Solved the Market which is about a guy named Jim Simons who founded Renaissance, which is a hedge fund. Everyone in the industry knows because they've made ungodly amounts of money for decades, very mysteriously. But they're they're not they're not a fraud like Madoff or anything. Okay, they don't even take customer money anymore, and that was very interesting because it, it was how this guy really used technology. But anyway, those are two most recent books I've read. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, the the history of GE is pretty fascinating. And what was the his, the famous CEO of the nineties, Jack? Neutron Jack. Neutron Jack? What was his first first or last name? Jack was his first name. Okay. Jack Welsh. Jack Welsh, of course. Yes, Jack Welsh. And his, you know, kind of the financial engineering that they started to work within the, you know, within GE. That started in the 1800s. Whoa. They financed all the utilities that were buying electrical generators for the very first time. Huh. So that's how GE finance started. And they, I mean, they were an incredible company. They bought all the patents to all the radio technology. That was RCA. RCA was, they bought all the patents and put in one company, and they owned the entire broadcast and radio industry. And then the government forced them to break up. And so it was just a, it's just a fascinating history. I'm only on this one third of the way through, so I don't know the rest yet. <laughs> Man, that's that's very cool. I like that. What a very interesting interview. And and typically, I don't like just talking about people's companies, but Diamond Standard seems like such a fascinating approach to a commodity and how you're you're pulling this together. So I really thank you for your time. I learned a lot. My pleasure. Don't usually get to talk about myself, so <laughs> I'm not used to it. But thank you. Right on. Well, thank you very much, Cormac. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. 
You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.